Well, good evening again. Nice to be back with you this evening. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was enjoying singing those great gospel hymns. Hymns with full of biblical truth and hymns that are a real blessing. Last time I was here was doing two or three midweeks. And I remember saying to some of you that attend the midweek about uh, a mission that I was involved in at that time down at Fintna. Indeed, some of you were praying uh, for people in that mission. Well, some of you will remember that it was at that time that DCI John Colwell was shot and injured just outside Oma and has, of course, made a wonderful recovery. But a colleague, an ex-colleague of his, attended that mission that I was involved in And it was one great joy to see that man coming to saving faith in Christ on the closing Sunday night. Wonderful, clear-cut conversion. And also that night as we brought the uh, mission to a close, uh, there was a cup of tea afterwards and people were sitting around tables and uh, the pastor noticed a wee girl, just eight years old, and she was crying. And he said to her, what's wrong? What's happened? She said, I need to get saved. And he led her to Christ that night as well. Uh, Truly wonderful to see people coming to saving faith in Christ. I mentioned this morning that I'd been involved in a mission in Donegal, and my colleague who was with me conducted a mission last week and the week before, well, two weeks ago, and then a a week in between. Uh, My colleague was taking a mission in Lossiemouth. Anybody know where Lossiemouth is? Where's your geography, eh? <laughs> uh, Lossiemouth is up on the, the northeast of Scotland. As you go up over the Murray Firth and right along, going toward Inverness, you'll find the, the little town of Lossiemouth. They were taking a tent mission, and he was telling me yesterday morning when I was talking to him that uh, the leader of the male voice choir, great folk up in that part of the world for male voice choirs, and there's a united, they come together every year for a great male voice praise uh, festival. And the leader of that festival and the song leader, he'd been praying for his daughter for many years. And she was in her 30s. And last Sunday night, as the mission came to a close, she said to William, I need to get saved and I need to get saved tonight. And she was wonderfully converted, as was another girl as well. And it's so encouraging, isn't it, when you see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to bring to you the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. This is an unashamedly evangelistic service. We're preaching for a verdict. And if you're not yet a Christian, we want to see you turning savingly to Jesus Christ. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 27. Matthew's gospel chapter 27 And we'll read from verse 26 through to 54. This is Pilate we read about. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they, bowed, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. After that, 
they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment. They put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation, uh, written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And when they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him, with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and he will believe him, we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. And if he, will, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on the reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they greatly, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. And we pray God's blessing upon the reading of this very precious account of the Savior's crucifixion, his death. A prayer together as we look at this passage. Oh God, we thank you tonight for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Our Savior, your Son, our Savior. We thank you for the Son of God tonight who loved us and gave himself for us. And oh God, we pray that as we think about the cross tonight, as we meditate upon part of this passage of Scripture and other Scriptures. Lord, we pray tonight that there might be someone who as yet does not know you will fall at your feet and cry to you for mercy and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the message of the Apostle Paul given to the Philippian jailer that day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. God grant that there might be someone uh, in this service or listening online 
might be truly converted this very night, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. One little verse of scripture I want just to read before we uh, launch into the message. The other verse of scripture that I'm reading is 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 1 and verse 18. Some of you will know exactly what verse I'm turning to. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Here it is. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are saved it is the power of God. I want to try and bring a little message to you tonight on the cross. I always find that when we focus on the cross and preach on the death of Christ, there is always a, a, a unique sense of the Lord's presence in our midst. The text that I want to uh, hang my thoughts on, as I talked about this morning, the text that I want us to focus on is that amazing text in Matthew chapter 27, where it simply says, And sitting down, they watched him there. And sitting down, they watched him there. I want us to try tonight and look at the cross and see who was on that cross. We'll come to that in a moment. Just by way of introduction, I want to say to you that the preaching of the cross is under great attack. Um, the uh, preaching of the cross, of course, the cross itself, the cross is rejected by other religions. Islam, for example, rejects the whole idea of a sin-bearing Savior. The Quran basically teaches that everyone reaps the fruit of their own deeds. Hinduism, of course, rejects the idea of a sin-bearing Savior. Humanism is simply a contemporary selfism and uh, again rejects a, various, uh, ato a vicarious atonement. The cross is rejected by other religions. Let me say this. Not only is the cross rejected by other religions, but the message of the cross has been marginalized by <clears throat> liberal scholarship. For over a hundred plus years, we have had a liberalism that has endeavored and sadly successfully in many places marginalized the preaching of the cross. There is, of course, a trend to preach Christ as the example and uh, basically follow the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's all that's required. I want to tell you tonight that it is the cross and the cross alone that can bring salvation. You see, Jesus just didn't live and uh, teach the Sermon on the Mount to give us an example. You know that Christmas carol that was around last Christmas and has been around once or twice? It's amazing the rubbish that people, even sometimes Christians, we swallow. That uh, Christmas carol that goes, man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. That's not true. If the, uh, if the incarnation, the birth of Christ, is not linked to the death of Christ, there is no message of salvation. The, as I say, the, 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 the cross has been, uh, the, has been marginalized by liberal scholarship. Listen, Jesus was born to die. That's the truth of God's Word. He came to be our Savior. Thirdly, the cross 
is in danger of being trivialized by much of contemporary evangelicalism. Sadly, it's being trivialized. That's why we need to declare its necessity. We need to establish its meaning, and we must never avoid its offense. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivotal event of human history. Now, you say, you've made a statement tonight. I have made a statement. The preaching of the cross is absolutely essential. You say, where did you get those three points from? The cross being rejected by other religions, marginalized by liberal scholarship, trivialized by contemporary evangelicalism. If you want to hear that expanded on, then listen to Alistair Begg. Some of you do, because I listened to Alistair Begg, and I listed those points, and I said, I want to declare that. I want to preach that as well. The absolute necessity of the preaching of the cross. Now we turn to it. And sitting down, they watched him there. Who did they see? Who was the man on the middle cross? We'll go through that in detail in a moment. But who was watching? Who was, who was in the group that were sitting watching Christ being crucified? Well, undoubtedly, Pilate was watching on, the man that was responsible for his condemnation, and his soldiers, the centurion that eventually admitted and confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Remember, he said, truly, this was the the Son of God. But the religious leaders, who knew exactly who he was, they sat and they watched him being put to death. Who did they see? Well, they saw the Messiah. They saw the promised Messiah as foretold in the Old Testament. And if anybody should have known, the Jewish leaders should have known who they were watching. You see, the prophet Isaiah reveals to us, and as we read Isaiah 53, we'll understand that the one on the middle cross didn't look like a king. He didn't look like a redeemer. You say, why do you say that? Well, he shall go up before him, as a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. He wasn't handsome in the sense that we might use the word. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. There wasn't anything particularly attractive about the one hanging on the middle cross. But he was the promised Messiah. The Messiah's promise back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You remember what God said to the old serpent who tricked her first parents? He said to him, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. What a message. He shall bruise your head. So we know who he was talking about. The Savior who would come come into the world. And of course we jump over to the prophet Isaiah again. And in uh, Isaiah, again, it's a Christmas text. We sometimes describe it as, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Have you ever thought, why does it not say unto us a child is born? Unto us a son is born. Have you ever asked that question? Well, there's a simple answer. The child was born, but the son wasn't born. He always was. He is the eternal Son of the living God. This is, this is the promised Messiah in human flesh. This is who Isaiah was talking about. This is the one who came to be our Savior. What a wonderful, a wonderful truth. And he's the king with four names. Do you remember it? 
Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a name he's given. Wonderful Counselor. Do you know that the word wonderful in the Old Testament and in the Scriptures was used exclusively to describe or refer to deity? You may have had a lovely meal in somebody's home and you may have turned to your host and said, Oh, that was wonderful. You would never have done that in, the, in, uh, in, in these days when Jesus was described as wonderful. He is full of wonder. He is the counselor. Now, it might be tonight that you might feel you need to attend a counselor who can help you with your difficulties and problems and stresses and strains in life. And if a counselor is of help, that's good. But I want to tell you tonight, as Christians, and if you come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have a wonderful counselor. And I'll tell you what, you'll not need any second opinion. You may go to a doctor, you may go to a solicitor, you may go to someone for advice. But when you go to the wonderful counselor, you'll never need to consult with others. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. What does that mean? He's the mighty warrior. He's the one who fights on behalf of his people. He's the warrior God. That's what the word mighty means. He is the everlasting father. I saw one of these uh, bullboards outside a church a year or two ago, and they dropped the words, they were putting up the Christmas text, and they dropped the words everlasting father. Somebody obviously didn't understand the scriptures and wondered how could Jesus Christ, the son, be the everlasting father? And of course, the everlasting father, when he's described as that, well, he's the Messiah. He is the one with the father nature. You know the story of the prodigal son and who, who is depicted as the father who runs down to meet the broken boy and throw his arms around him and pardon him and forgive him and restore him back into the family. Of course, it's the father. And the father, of course, in the story of the prodigal son is the picture of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what, if you're a broke, in a brokenness tonight, a state of brokenness and a state of distress and despair, I can point you to a counselor who'll give you the best advice anybody can give you. I can point you to a father who will comfort you in a way that no other person can ever comfort you. And these people sat at the cross and they watched him there. Tell me, have you had a wee look at the cross? No, I'm not talking about having a wee glance at the Bible and maybe read the story of the cross. Have you ever sat down and considered who this was? What he was doing is he hung on the middle cross and sitting down, they watched him there. Have you sat down, thought about who he is, the promised Messiah? You know, there's over 400, well over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament referring to Christ's birth, his death, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. They're all there. And these Jewish leaders should have known exactly who he was. They sat and they watched him there. Secondly, who were they watching? Not only the promised Messiah, but they were watching the one who was indeed the perfect sacrifice. You see, right throughout the Old Testament, these Jewish people, they should have known who he was. Uh, the, 
sacrifice is illustrated again and again in the Old Testament. You remember the story, many of you will know it at least, back in Genesis chapter 22 where God told Abraham to take a son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to God. God was testing Abraham. And then at the point when Abraham was about to take the knife and slay his son, remember God spoke to him and he said, Abraham, don't lay a finger on your son. And he withdrew. And then God told Abraham, look behind you and you'll find in the thicket. Well, in Northern Ireland, we would call that a pile of briars, whin bushes. Eh? Look behind you and you'll find a ram caught, by, uh, 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 caught in the thicket. What's the next words? By his horns. And you're looking at me and saying, well, what's the significance of that? Well, you sheep farmers will know. It's very, very unusual. In fact, it's well nigh impossible to find a ram or a big lamb caught in a thicket, in a, uh, in a pile of briars or winds or, or whatever, and it's only caught by its horns. What happens to it? Well, when it gets caught, it dives backwards and forwards and sideways until it's wrapped up in the old briars and the thorns. Not only is the fleece damaged, but the skin's damaged and the flesh is damaged, and it's no longer a perfect lamb. But the significance of this ram being caught by his horns was that it was a perfect offering. It was unblemished. And the unblemished lamb was taken from that thicket and, in Isaac's, and took Isaac's place upon the altar of sacrifice. What was that pointing toward? It was pointing toward the perfect sacrifice that Christ offered on Calvary's cross where he stood in, we'll come to the substitution in a moment, but where Christ offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for you and me. You see, Jesus was sinless. Jesus was spotless. He and he alone could pay the price of sin. There's a picture way back there in Genesis chapter 22 of God's perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice for sin. Of course, we have it again illustrated. In Exodus chapter 12, you know the story of the Passover. The children of Israel are down in Egypt. What did God do? God provided a way by which the children of Israel would escape the, uh, the plagues that would pass through the land of Egypt. What did God do? He told them to take a lamb from the flocks. And it had to be, what? A prime lamb, a perfect lamb, a pure lamb. It had to be spotless, it had to be perfect. And they took that lamb, and what did they do? They were told to slay the lamb, put its blood in the basin, then take a bunch of hyssop, sprinkle the blood uh, with a bunch of hyssop upon the doorposts and the lintels of their home. And as they did that, what did God say to the children of Israel? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Just as the perfect lamb was provided for Abraham and Isaac, so in Exodus chapter 12, the perfect lamb, the perfect lamb was provided whereby the children would escape the wrath, would escape the judgment that would pass through the land of Egypt that night. And sitting down, they watched him there. Who was on that cross? None other than the perfect sacrifice, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would offer himself as the supreme 
perfect offering for sin. Have you seen him? Do you understand who he is? Do you know what he's doing for you? Sitting down tonight, look there to the cross. Look at Calvary and see what he has done on your behalf. Thirdly, he was not only the promised Messiah, he was not just the perfect sacrifice, he was the substitutionary lamb. In uh, Isaiah 52, we're told there, Behold my servant, John chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God. You see, Christ was not only the sacrifice, but he was indeed our substitute. Doesn't Isaiah 53 teach us? He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I love that hymn. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. What's the next bit? In my place condemned he stood. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. How? With his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Sometimes we sing the, 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 the children's song, Wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross he was wounded for me. You see, he loved us and he gave himself for us. There's another lovely hymn that bears out the truth of substitutionary atonement. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. There, there's no load for me. This morning we sang a Charles Wesley hymn. And that's good. Somebody told me on one occasion, if your sermon's weak, sing two or three Charles Wesley hymns. They'll make up for bad theology or poor theology. They're packed with theology. Listen to these words of Charles Wesley's. Arise, my soul, arise. Listen to one of the verses. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. And we sang that song this morning. Uh, around the table. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And Stuart Townend and Keith Getty were writing that lovely song in Christ Alone. They were challenged. They were asked, actually. It was on a BBC Northern Ireland documentary about a year or two ago. They were asked if they would uh, drop the line, drop the verse of the hymn, of that song, about the wrath of God is satisfied. Do you know the verse? The wrath of God is satisfied. Well, of course, you know, there was a, a so-called theologian that described that kind of, that kind of language and that, those words as cosmic child abuse. He's a heretic. That was not cosmic child abuse. That was Jesus Christ being the substitute for our sins. Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us he was made sin for us? He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what caused Christ to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, we on occasions hear people talk about 
such and such a thing is hell on earth. I remember when Prince Harry came back from uh, uh, Afghanistan a number of years ago when he was serving in the military. He uh, made a statement, of course, and the media latched onto it. He said, war is hell. War is hell. Endeavoring to, of course, state that war is a dreadful thing. There was only once that hell came to earth. And I'll tell you where it was. It was on that first Good Friday when all the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, was laid upon Christ and He was the perfect sacrifice and He was providing a full and a perfect atonement that our sins might be atoned for. Uh, It isn't time to develop that any further. Move to the last point. There's the suffering servant. He's the sacrifice. He is the substitute, but he is also the suffering servant. I want you to have 14 points here. How long are you going to give me? I'll try and do it in 30 seconds each. Probably not do them all. The despicable arrest. As I read through the account of the crucifixion, don't talk about the story of the crucifixion. It's not a story. It's an accurate account of the crucifixion. The despicable arrest. And we read that they they bound the hands of Jesus. Those were the hands that touched the little ones. Those were the hands that healed the sick, that cured the leper, that raised the dead. What hands? They bound the hands of Jesus and he was arrested. Then there was the heartbreaking. Of course, for that to happen, there was the heartbreaking betrayal by Judas. There was the denial by Peter. And that was followed by the mock trials. Do you know how many trials there were? How many (laughs) trials did Jesus face? Well, there was a trial before Annas and Caiaphas. One was like the senior judge, and then there was the lower department. So there were two trials essentially there. Then he was before Pilate. And Pilate, of course, discovered that Christ had come from Galilee, a different jurisdiction. So he tried to wash his hands of him and send Christ back to Herod. And, of course, Herod and and Pilate were sworn enemies. But suddenly the Pararascals became friends. And when Christ was appearing before Herod, all he wanted to do was to get Jesus to do party tricks for him. That's all. It was a sheer mockery, utter mockery, when he came before, uh, 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 before Herod. That was followed by the trumped-up charges, the false accusations. Tell me, have you ever been falsely accused of something? Put in a corner, and you're falsely accused of something. Something that you know that you're absolutely and utterly innocent of. How do you feel? It's a crushing thing. And here Christ is facing the sinless Son of God, is facing those dreadful accusations. That was followed by the brutal scourging. The word that is used to describe Christ's back after he had been scourged is the same word that is used to describe a plowed field. You see a sward of grass or you see a pasture and then it's turned over. It's a different shape, it's a different color. 
That's the word that is used to describe the scourging that Christ endured. There was the gross humiliation, the fact that he was spat upon. There was the vile blasphemy, the crown of thorns, the reed put in his hand, the bowing, the mocking bowing of the knee. That was followed by the horrendous greediness. They cast lots over his clothing. There was the darkened sun. He took he was taking the curse. There was a hidden face. You see, the face of Christ was so bloodied and so bruised that he was unrecognizable as a human being. That's why the sun went into darkness. God wouldn't allow the face of a son to be clearly seen at that moment. And then the amazing submission, he opened not his mouth. And, and, and the ultimate crucifixion when Pilate condemned him. But I want us for a moment to think about these men that were sitting watching Jesus. And they couldn't help but have seen the two thieves, one on either side. Of course they saw him. They saw one mocking and railing on Christ. But then they saw the other. What did he do? Must have been an amazing scene. I'd love to have been there to see that other convicted criminal. And by the way, these weren't petty thieves. These were equal to out-and-out terrorists. They had committed horrendous crimes, these two criminals that were crucified one on either side of Christ. That was to lower uh, the... the, uh, well, to, as it were, increase the guilt if they could put guilt on Christ because they were saying this man is equal uh, doing that. But when they saw that criminal turn to Christ and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to ask you tonight, Have you ever said, Lord, remember me? Do you know what? He's the only one who wants to remember sinners. We want to put sinners and criminals in jail. We would say the place for them. You and I are sinners in the sight of God. And here's this convicted criminal in a place of utter repentance, and he turns to Christ, and he says, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. They were watching him. They were listening to Christ. What would he say to the request of this criminal? And what does Jesus say? Beautiful words. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Christ spoke seven times. This was number six. Today you will be with me in paradise. He spoke the word of salvation to a repentant sinner. I want to ask you tonight, as you look on the Lord Jesus, as you look on his crucifixion, as you look on the one hanging on that middle cross, who do you see? Do you see religious event? Do you see... Uh, a martyr? Do you see someone treated badly just? Or do you see that man on that middle cross as the only one who can pardon your sin? The only one who can open the door into heaven for you? 
Do you see him tonight as the one who can become, the one who you can crown Lord of your life? And he'll promise you an inheritance in heaven. That is, the, 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 the first, uh, first Peter, Peter talks about the inheritance that is un- incorruptible, that's undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Do you see that one tonight? The wonderful Savior. Alistair Begg again tells a wonderful story, and I repeat it. He says, uh, tells the story, imagining him, this criminal, this thief, arrives at the door of heaven, and the angels meet him. Your name, sir? He was his name. And how did you get here? The criminals uh, didn't give an answer, but he's asked a number of questions. By the way, what's your understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> Poor old criminal says, never heard of it. What's your understanding of the doctrine of the church? I haven't a clue. And the questioning goes on. And then the angel says, well, tell me, how did you get here? And the answer was simple. The man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. And I want to say to you tonight in this church or whoever may be listening online, if you will ever enter the pearly gates of heaven of glory, there is only one who can open that gate and open that door for you. And he's the one who hung on the middle cross. And unless you embrace him as your savior, repent of your sin and turn to him, those gates will never, ever open. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt in all my pride. See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Do you see him tonight? Do you see him? He's the only one who can open that door for you. Would you embrace him as your saviour? Would you like to do it tonight? Open your heart to him and call upon him. It will be my greatest joy to lead you to saving faith in Christ. And if we can help you, we'd be delighted to do that uh, with you after the service is over. But right now, we're going to sing our closing song. It's number 319. I didn't choose this, but it's perfect for the service tonight. Sinner, how thy heart is troubled. God is coming very near. Do not hide thy deep emotion. Do not check that falling tear. Art thou waiting till tomorrow? Thou mayst never see its light. Come at once, accept his mercy. He is waiting. Come tonight. Let's sing this together. We'll just sing verses 3 and 4, and uh, we'll stand to sing as we sing the last two verses of 319. Thank you. <laughs>